From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latinx culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin-A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Politics isn't about following important things. It's about doing something where people are relying on you to make like a difference in other people's lives. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is somebody who wrote a book that has been bouncing around in my head a bunch. Uh, I've ended up mentioning it quite a bit on my own book tour, which I think is a, a high form of praise. His name is Eitan Hirsch. He's a professor of political science at Tufts University, and he is the author of a book called Politics is for Power, which is making this distinction, which we'll talk about at, at some length in this discussion, between participating in politics as a form of self-expression or following it as a form of almost entertainment the way you might follow a sport and actually doing the work of politics. And it's one of those distinctions that in some ways very simple and maybe you already sense it or know it. But when you begin to really sit in it and deal with it, it becomes a quite powerful way of looking at the world and maybe looking at yourself. Um, so I think that's actually a pretty important conversation, including for people who listen to this podcast, and it might spawn some self-reflection. Not that I don't want you here, but is this podcast leading to anything for you, right? If you're here a couple hours a week, is it creating any kind of actual political action for you? Or is it just something that has become a, a form of entertainment and hopefully enrichment? But maybe there's more. And if you stick around to the end of this particular episode, I have a request for you on that note. Um, but as always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Eitan Hirsch. Eitan Hirsch, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Let me start with you, actually, rather than your theories. Tell me a bit about your background in political organizing, political hobbyism, political action. Like as a human, you mean, not as like as a, a, a human. researcher. Yes. Yeah. So as a human, I say I come. I would say I come from the world of the hobbyists. You know, I like grew up in in an environment where people read the news. My parents were you know into the news. I went with them as a kid to vote and all that, but we weren't at all engaged in real political activity. And I would say like probably. A lot of the feelings I had about organizing or political activity, it felt kind of dirty in the weeds, maybe beneath me. The idea of a protest like just doesn't sit well. I mean, I'm not the kind of person that I don't want to be in the protest. So 
don't know. That's the kind of background I have, I guess, that brings to bear on this. Tell me what you mean by that. Why would political organizing feel dirty or in the weeds or beneath you? I don't know. I mean, this is all obviously before getting into the book, right? Uh, before I started really meeting with these people and understanding what it's all about. But I guess like a lot of people, I don't have strong partisan inclinations. I, I never did. I grew up in Rhode Island in you know the 90s. And there we had uh, like a, a community of people that I grew up in were almost all Democrats, but also like very antagonistic toward the Democratic establishment in the state, which was both quite socially conservative and also quite corrupt. So, you know, many people know the mayor of Providence, Buddy Cianci, was this very corrupt mayor. He was a Democrat, of course. And then there was beloved Republican senators, you know, the Chafees, who, you know, my family and many people had no problem supporting, even though they identified as Democrats. So I never felt a strong attachment to a party and to a protest, you know, I don't know, being in a, a big mob of people chanting stuff, it just didn't feel like something I wanted to do. Um, and it thinks, I think a lot of times that's because I, I probably didn't understand it so well. So how does somebody who has that set of feelings and intuitions become a political scientist? Because most of the people I know who go into that field and end up writing academic work and books on political science or theory, they're doing it because they were activated from a young age you know, outrage and even partisan attachment or activating emotions. And they tend to have quite strong opinions. Um, I'll be honest, I'm a little skeptical with the idea that you were not partisan compared to most people. I read your Twitter feed. I have some sense of you that not partisan that you love Democrats, but but that you had strong opinions about who should win and, and what should happen in politics. But if I'm wrong about that, then how did you end up on the life path you did? Yeah. So actually, like my Politics have always been moderate. My job, like the jobs I've had as a, as a, in politics, like I was a Republican Senate page sponsored by my Republican Senator John Chafee in 1999. I spent a semester of high school in Washington working for the Republican side in the U.S. Senate. After college, I spent a year at the Democratic Leadership Council as a as like a, a fellow, which is was like a moderate or centrist Democratic establishment. And so my path to political science is really like a strong commitment to politics and political process. But, you know, because I didn't have that strong ideological bone, I, I didn't plug in really well to like the campaign world or to the think tank world or areas that felt actually more ideological. So I've always kind of been comfortable as a political scientist precisely because, you know, I don't feel like I've had those strong ideological preferences. So your work got onto my radar a couple of years ago when my colleague Dylan Matthews began telling me about this guy, Etan Hirsch, with this idea of political hobbyism that I needed to, to check out. How did the political hobbyism work path idea sector first come onto your radar? So this is like very different than anything I worked on before. You know, most of my earlier work, my initial work was about campaign analytics and uh, big data, the voter registration system. I worked about campaigns and about uh, about voting rights issues and kind of did a lot of court testimony about voting rights issues. And then, you know, as a sort of second big project, I wanted to take a step back from narrow hypothesis testing, which is, you know, what people like me generally do, and try to look at the big picture of political behavior. Like, what is a citizen doing in this country when they're engaging in politics? And I just had, I don't know, I guess a realization when you look at all of the behaviors that we call political, news consumption, partisan cheerleading, voting, activism, like it just didn't seem like politics to me at some core level. Like, I think I have a definition of politics that seems somewhat reasonable, I would hope, which is something like, you know, working with others with goals and strategies to influence the government. And 
that just didn't strike me as like what 90% of people are doing who say they're engaged in politics. Um, and it just felt a lot closer to a kind of shallow hobby like sports fandom than it did to organized political activity. And, you know, that's the origin story. I, I want to hold on that definition because you said quickly that it seems reasonable and I think it does seem reasonable. But as you say, it's actually not, I think, the definition a lot of people have. And it seems to me that you are quietly making a distinction between what we might call politics as a verb and politics as a noun, that you can be interested in the subject of politics and you can be doing politics. And those are much more different things than the fact that we use the same word, let's on. Yeah, that's right. And if you say, like, I'm engaged in politics, I'm a politically engaged person, it's not clear which one you mean. I think most people mean the kind of the hobbyist form, which is that they're interested in the topic of politics. It doesn't mean I'm engaged in politics like I'm doing it. So let's define the word hobbyist here. Um, what is political hobbyism? So I call it political hobbyism is basically a catch all for all the ways we do politics to serve our own emotional or intellectual needs or wants rather than to do this kind of power-seeking, organized behavior. So, you know, I think every, a lot of your listeners will be familiar with, like, the term slacktivism, of taking some, like, token online action, like signing in a, 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 an online petition. But there's a lot of forms of political engagement that aren't quite like that. It's sort of like arguing about the news, sharing the news, reacting to news, being a kind of amateur at-home pundit about the news. So all of those those things, like the news consumption, the worrying, thinking, spending, like giving politics your headspace and your emotion, but not doing the the real work of it. So, you know, it's a, a broad term. So I want to hold on the term, though, for a minute, because some of the the cuts it makes, I think, are, are unexpected. So and, and I will say, as we talk about this, that it implicates me quite deeply because of the work I do, depending on how you define it, you can just call or categorize as functionally crack for political hobbyists. <laughs> and many people listening <laughs> to the podcast right now, um, in, under your definition, what they are doing, what we are doing is political hobbyism. But in my head, the work I do is give people good information and analysis on politics that helps motivate their action. And I think a lot of people imagine that what they're doing when they inform themselves about politics is that information leads to action and it leads to being able to take good, clear action. So how do you make a cut between those two things when a lot of people see one is actually leading to and being necessary for the other? Yeah. So normally the way I think about it is like this. Most people who are political junkies, their news consumption is not really geared toward information that is going to help them be citizens active in the community. And even if it is, they're not being active in the community. So, you know, most people who are daily news consumers belong to zero organizations, have worked zero times in the past year with other people on a community problem, you know, have attended zero meetings, and so they're not most people are not doing anything. That's number one. And number two is, you know, if you're if you're mostly following like the horse race and Trump drama, then it's not clear that that stuff is going to help you. I think there's like a, a bigger conversation about, well, you know, venues for news, which I read and like, like Vox or 538, like what, you know, what are they doing? And sometimes I have conversations with folks who work at big news organizations and they say like look all the clicks are toward some of the horse race stuff you know the new york times results page gets a ton of attention and in some ways what that stuff is doing is paying for the 
the more important stories that are going to guide people's behaviors. And there truly are a lot of news news stories and drawing attention to issues that do inform people's behavior. So it's not like a a black and white thing. But, but, um, you know, I think that when you look at the fact that most people are drawn to the, the horse race and the drama and that most people are doing nothing active, then you might reach the conclusion that a lot of that news consumption, which feels like it could be a predecessor to action, isn't actually. So I think it'd be easy right now to be listening to this and think this is just a conceptual distinction. But you have actual survey data in the book and in the work you've done suggesting uh, the amount of time people spend on politics and the amount of time they spend on political hobbyism and how that even breaks down demographically. So could you substantiate this a little bit for me? Give me give me some of the numbers here. That's right. So um, if you look at the number of people who are spending time on politics, there's about a third of the country that says they're spending about two hours a day in news consumption, which might sound crazy at first. But if you add up all the time on uh, podcasts or radio and reading the news and worrying about it and talking about it at the family dinner table, I wouldn't say people are great at estimating these things, but two hours actually doesn't seem that unreasonable for how a lot of people are. But, sp- but let me hold you on that because that, that that sounded crazy to me. And you have you talk about work you've done suggesting that people lie about how often they vote. So I'm curious why you actually trust that data, given how much work you yourself have been involved in showing that if you ask people whether or not they voted, they overwhelmingly misremember or uh, misstate what happened in the direction of being more participatory. Yeah. So I would say that the the results of those studies generally suggest that people um, will inflate socially desirable things that they're doing. So if you ask them, have you volunteered in your community? That you might think is a socially desirable thing. Have you volunteered for a political campaign? For a lot of people, that'd be a socially desirable thing. And something like, you know, four or 5% of the public in 2016 said they volunteered in some way for a political party or a campaign. And so maybe that's two or three times too big. You know, maybe it's more like one or 2% of the public actually volunteered for a campaign. On other issues like TV watching, people actually do the opposite, which is like maybe they're a little embarrassed that they watch a lot of TV. So they really watch four hours a day, but they say three hours. So, you know, when you're talking about politics, it's probably cuts both ways. You know, they might be inflating the real work and deflating the the fake work, but it is actually really hard to, to gauge this. You know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics tries to put a lot of effort into these time use studies that measures how people are spending their time. And, you know, people mostly spend their leisure time on TV or kind of passive consumption, and they don't spend their time active in community or volunteer engagement. So we, I think we're pretty clear on that. And we also see trends over time on this, right? So we see in the national election study, which has asked voters every year since 1952, how interested you are in politics, how interested you are in the election. 2016 was higher by far than any other year. But if you look at that same survey that asks, like, have you volunteered for a party or candidate or anything like that, you know, it's below the historical average. So, you know, at least if the lying is stable over time, we do see this this growing gulf between cognitive engagement in politics and real engagement in politics. Okay, so a third of the population at least says they spend two hours a day on politics. How, How does that two hours break down and how does it differ among groups? Yeah. So, I mean, it's almost all, I mean, you know, like almost none of it, like say 2% of it uh, is real community or volunteer engagement. The rest is mostly news consumption. That's by far the biggest. And then, you know, sharing and talking and debating online 
It's that, you know, that's basically what it amounts to. And, you know, it's different among different demographic groups. So, for example, uh, the group that spends the most time in any kind of political engagement, including all these passive times, is white men, particularly college-educated white men. And these people also, if you ask them on surveys, like a bunch of political facts questions, they know the most facts about politics. But they are not the group that is engaging most in uh, real politics, that is an organized politics with goals and strategies. You have women overwhelmingly in those roles in volunteer organizations, for example. You also have racial minorities, particularly blacks, but also to some extent Latinos, who spend less overall time on politics, like following the news, but more of their time is spent in these concrete ways. So I want to hold on something you just said that's really important. So knowing the most about politics does not correlate to doing the most politics. I think that's a real challenge to how a lot of people think about it, to even what people like me are doing. Tell me more about that. And if it's not knowing more about politics or whatever leads to people knowing more about politics, it gets them to engage in the verb of politics. What is it? So, right. I mean, I think that if you are the kind of person that knows politics are important and um, thinks yourself as someone who's politically engaged, then knowing facts seems like, you know, a good way to go. You know, I could be in a at a dinner table conversation and explain people the rules of the Iowa caucuses and why the Iowa caucuses took a long time to get results. And I could and it's complicated. And again, that's sort of like a hobby. I have a, a particular knowledge about that. But the thing that's going to get you off your couch to actually get power for things you care about are probably going to be like how uncomfortable or upset you are with what's going in pol- on in politics. So, you know, when you see this big movement of women after 2016 forming committees, resistance groups and all that running for office, I think people would generally tell a story like they felt really threatened by the changing status quo and they wanted to do something about it. I think when you see, you know, since in 2008, 2012, 2016, you see African-Americans report on surveys higher participation in organized political life, you think uh, maybe that's because they feel like they need more from the government than uh, a college-educated white man needs from the government. I think that's really well put. But but to hold on this point of knowledge for just one more minute, do you think for a lot of people there is a psychological mistake happening that when you are following the New York Times needle on election night or you are listening to a ton of The Ezra Klein Show and Pod Save America and so on, that it actually feels to you like you are doing something political. This is a point Gia Tolentino makes in Trick Mirror and, and in a podcast we did together I always thought was pretty sharp, which is that the internet in particular, because you can share things, send them, et cetera, it creates a sense of expressing or consuming and then distributing an opinion feels like a political action um, in a way that maybe simply reading a newspaper article in the past didn't. And so it tricks us on some level into thinking that simply consuming and sharing a lot of political information is acting politically when it's really not any more of a political act than simply passively reading the newspaper was in a previous era. Yeah, that all sounds right to me. I think that's that's right on. And And by the way, it's not like there's not a lot of interesting things to learn about in your own community or ways that you could have an impact. You know, your colleague, Matt Iglesias, has drawn a lot of attention to this on affordable housing, for example. You know, like actually learning how power operates in your state 
or city is pretty interesting. Uh, there's a lot of facts to be learned. <laughs> um, but I think the focus on the national stuff both allows us to have this uh, shared experience like on the internet with everyone and also right satiates us like it makes us feel emotionally co- emotionally connected to some big moment or a big set of moments um when we're really not let me push on this definition for a minute because i think that it might be easy to suggest these aren't political acts but maybe maybe they are in a way that you're not giving them credit for so take somebody online on red rose twitter or who's a trans activist who does a lot of their work tweeting and being online and pushing people in the first case, maybe to take Bernie Sanders more seriously and socialism more seriously. And they're sending signals back to media uh, elites like me about what people want to read, which is certainly I don't think there's any doubt that Bernie Sanders's online fleets of people have actually helped him get a lot more media coverage and become a much more serious and prime candidate. Or similarly, that there's been a lot of aggressive work that has been in many cases very effective from people in different social justice movements, be they racial or gender identity or others, to change the way language is policed or used, how people are talked about. And that effort to change what is covered, to change what is taken seriously, and to change how things are discussed, I mean, isn't that a political act and doesn't it have real effects? It seems to me that it is affecting the presidential race. It certainly seems to me that it affects how the media covers certain topics. Maybe you're not giving that kind of online what gets derided as slacktivism enough credit. So I say a couple of things. First is, you know, there are plenty of strategic actors in the online space who are trying to do something. And my book is really written for the typical consumer of that stuff, the typical hobbyist, right? The person who spends a lot of time uh, engaged in politics online. And they, I want to, I want to ask them, the readers, like, are you being strategic? Like, do you have goals and how are you accomplishing those goals? If I met with a an interest group that had this whole plan of how to raise awareness on some issue, um, and this was part of their plan, okay, I'd be interested in that. And I just think that's a different perspective than the perspective of the end user who, um, again, is like a recipient of someone else's strategy. The other thing I would say is, and obviously, yeah, there are, like, there are plenty of examples of changes that have made because of online engagement. But oftentimes, like, where things ought to be a start, they're an end. I think of the Black Lives Matter movement, which I think is a very interesting movement because it's very concrete in what it is seeking. And raising awareness about that issue is really important, in my opinion, and um, a great first step. But then what's going to have to happen is people are going to have to go to the police departments and the city councils and their own communities and ask the questions that the Black Lives Matter movement is asking, which is like, what are what is our what is our police force doing and how do they encounter uh, you know what do they do in these different situations and what should they be doing and my concern about a lot of the online engagement is like we never get to that stage because people feel satiated by the first stage like they have done some by by raising awareness and they feel again that connection to some big idea but they're not willing uh, to, or, or maybe they feel tr- they actually are kind of duped into thinking that the, you know, sharing or changing your profile picture or whatever they're doing is a substitute for that second step. So that that makes sense to me. But something that is striking to me in the book is that you classify some acts as political hobbyism that I don't think most people would normally think of as such. So donating to a candidate, being part of a protest, even some forms of canvassing. In, in what sense are those forms of political hobbyism? So, you know, the way I talk about, say, small dollar donations is that 
And again, there's there's small dollar donations where really thoughtful people are sitting around in a circle and thinking, how can we support a bunch of candidates and give them our money? But a lot of what's happening in small dollar donations is people say, like, watching a presidential debate and the second person on the debate says, stage says something like uh, really provocative, you feel connected to them and you give them a $5 donation. Or you're watching congressional hearing for some reason, instead of like reading about it the next day. So you're watching a congressional hearing and a politician grandstands and makes some speech. And because they grandstanded in a way that you liked, you react by giving a $5 donation. And the difference between that first way to do, say, small dollar donations and the second way is about organization and strategy and goals. And so if what's really going on is you have no goals, but your goals is to like reward a politician for saying something that feels in the moment great to you, then I actually think you're making politics worse rather than better. And you are doing it more for yourself, for your own kind of emotional cathartic ends rather than to move politics in a direction that's good for you. I think that's actually a good bridge to your critique of political hobbyism, um, which I think people will hear the term and think it's a bit derisive, and I think it probably is. But you say that there are three primary reasons that political hobbyism is bad. It makes our politicians worse. It makes us worse. And it takes away time we could be spending building power. Let's take those one by one. Um, this is connected to your last answer, but how does it make our politicians worse? Yeah. So obviously, if if we are going to give them, a t- if we're going to like a pay attention to a congressional hearing and the way we're paying attention to that congressional hearing is like waiting for something exciting to happen, like, you know, waiting for the hockey players to get into a fight, then like we're the ones incentivizing politicians to do that. Like we're going to reward them with dollars or with our eyeballs when they act that way. You know, like uh, about a year ago, I was um, asked to testify in the Senate and the Judiciary Committee. Um about my last book, which was about data analytics, and and there was the Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal, and so I was I was asked to, I was asked to testify about it, and I at first said no because I've seen these hearings before and they just look like shows, especially the Judiciary Committee, which has a disproportionate set of senators who are really like media attention, it seems. And the attorneys said to me when I said no, they said, you know, send us the report and do the hearing. We really, the lawyers here, we really do read the reports very seriously and we'll take your opinions very seriously. And and yeah, you do kind of have to put yourself through the show of the unimportant hearing, but just do it because then we'll listen to your ideas. And that was like a striking answer to me. They were just basically admitting like, yeah, this whole thing is a circus. And, th- and again, I want to say the reason it's a circus is not because of an institution necessarily that's that's bad. It's because we, the most engaged citizens in this country, want the institution to be like that because we're rewarding bad behavior. So that actually hits your second point, which is it makes us worse. How does political hobbyism make us worse? Yeah. So the way I think about that is like there's a lot of power relationships we have outside of politics where we are trying to get other people to take some action that they wouldn't otherwise take that we want them to take. You know, so as a parent, I can think of all the ways I try to get my children to take some action that they don't want to take. Or you might think about a boss or uh, uh, or if you're a boss, someone who works for you. And we kind of know the basic parameters for how to behave in those situations, which is we have to understand where people are coming from, understand their needs. We have to be empathetic to them. And that's how you can bring other people along with you. And that does not describe the way that people do politics online, because if the whole point of it is kind of for fun or for catharsis, then anger and outrage and 
not taking people's opinions seriously, but trying to find all the nitpicky ways we can attack them. Like we just don't do politics in a particularly nice way online. And offline, it's not that it's nice, but it requires a sense of empathy and understanding other people's interests. Otherwise, you can't get anything done. So that's a sense we're just practicing completely the wrong skill set if you're engaging in, you know, Facebook fights or Twitter wars. Let me hold on that because you have a nice discussion. And and I should say for people who have not read the book, a lot of the book is profiles and reporting with actual organizers on the ground who are doing different kinds of interesting work building power in communities. And something you say in those sections is that the truly great organizers you've met work off of a very deep well of empathy. I think that that is not something people would always recognize, particularly if they're used to online organizing, which tends to work off of a very deep sense of outrage. So can you talk about why it is and how that empathy is used? Sure. Yeah. And, I, you know, I would say that, you know, we've, we've, we have been hitting on sort of the negative parts of political hobbyism. And, and you were right to say that political hobbyism is kind of a disparaging term. And I, I kind of want people to, to reflect on that and say, yeah, it is disparaging. And I think it's disparaging because many people have much deeper commitments to politics in their hearts than often shine through in their actions. And, and really, the point of the book is to get them more connected, right? You know, you're spending a lot of time and emotional energy on politics. What are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to channel it? And so these organizers really have changed my whole understanding of politics. Uh, I'm trying to think of which example I should give to make the most sense of this empathy one. But, you know, maybe the best one or simplest one is is Lisa, who's this uh, volunteer in Brooklyn who goes to Staten Island every weekend and talks to Trump voters. And she's Lisa's a liberal. And, you know, she goes to these Trump voters in this method of called deep canvassing, which which there's been some reporting on deep canvassing by others. And what she's trying to do is basically tell this voter at the door a little bit about where she's coming from on some issue or some candidate and then invite them in a very open and empathetic way to share themselves where they're coming from on an issue. And the idea there is that like, okay, sometimes maybe she'll talk to some Fox News junkie who's just going to yell at her or never move. But actually, a lot of times she's going to talk to someone who hasn't thought through the issues or their vote very much. And if someone like Lisa, who's friendly and kind and patient, is there with open arms and respectful, maybe that person will come around. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. Whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fox. You can go to shopify.com slash fox now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. 
Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with Wise. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let Wise help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using Wise worldwide. To learn more about how a Wise account could work for you, download the app or visit wise.com. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot com, wise dot com. Let's talk a bit about deep canvassing. So because I think that the least example is a good one for this and, and it connects to some themes of this show. So something I talk about in my book and I've talked about on this show a lot is the way politics as practiced in modernity collapses our identities down into much smaller versions of ourselves and into to, to, to things that are quite difficult to move. And I talk in the book about things like Barack Obama discussing why he thinks polarization is overstated, and it had a lot to do in his view with the way in which it misses who we are when we're coaching Little League or going to a PTA meeting or meeting another parent. And deep canvassing, uh, which I'd like you to define but but to, to, to build on it for a second, deep canvassing seems to me very much to be about pulling forward other identities and then trying to connect like the political change you want somebody to make to an identity that is not the first one they bring to it. That if, you know, when you open the door and you say, hey, I'm Lisa and I want to talk to you about Bernie Sanders, their first their first impulse is I'm a Republican who watches Fox News and Bernie Sanders is a socialist, that what she's then trying to do is actually say, no, I'm a I'm the, you know, this is not her now, but but just hypothetically, you know, I'm the caregiver for an, you know, an elderly parent. And um, for us to be able to afford long-term care, we need Medicare for all or something like it. And you maybe have a similar situation in your life that that a lot of this actually, the empathy and organizing seems to me to, to be part of trying to do the very hard work of activating different identities than politics usually activates and that people usually connect to their politics. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, but I, I would say it in a different way. I, I think there's two things going on with what you said. The first thing is just that if you are engaged in actual real politics, those identities do break down very quickly, right? So I live in a overwhelmingly democratic, liberal town of well-educated people near Boston. It's voted like 90% for Hillary Clinton. And you might think that that is, you know, a silo of people with a shared identity. But if you actually wanted to engage on some issues that, say, liberals say they care a lot about, like racial equality, affordable housing, the environment, and you actually have to to argue with your neighbors about maybe paying higher taxes to pay for some of these things, for opening up schools in ways that are now closed, all of a sudden, those seemingly shared identities are pretty meaningless. And you're actually going to have a lot of conflict over these issues that are, are, they're not just local issues. They're really tied to national issues, the environment, racial equality. These are things that Democrats say they care most about. But the second you actually have to engage in, say, policymaking at a local level on them, again, the identities have nothing to do with those, you know, the big Democratic versus Republican identities have nothing to do with, um, with the conflict or, or little less to do with the conflict. 
The second thing I would say is that whether you want to focus on something really small, like some tiny change in city code that, you know, maybe you think is good for the environment, or whether you want to um, elect Donald Trump or Donald Trump's opponent, the method is actually very, very similar. That is, you still have to be that nice person at the door to try to move someone along with you, no matter what it is that you want out of it. So again, it's like you might have in your own self this like identity tied to a party, but no matter what level of government you are operating in, if you want to make progress on that, you have to focus on the other stuff. And, and part of it is not just that, you know, a deliberate attempt to change what identity you're focused on. It's just that like that stuff doesn't seem as meaningful when you're talking to people. So I want to go to that issue of are you connecting to quote unquote, the smaller issues or, or the bigger ones? Because one thing that seems to me to be a reason you see a lot more political hobbyism is people's political attachments have become much more national. I have a ton of evidence on this in my book. You have some in your book as well. People's attachments have become more national. But it is quite hard for most people to find or conceptualize a strategically efficient way to get involved in national politics beyond maybe giving a couple bucks to uh, you know a candidate they like. And that's all the more true because we have this weird electoral system where if you live where you live outside Boston or I live in, in the Bay Area of California – your vote really doesn't matter. Organizing locally in terms of the presidential campaign might matter in the primary, but it's really, really unlikely the Democrat is going to lose the the Bay Area in twenty in uh, twenty twenty or in uh, or, or or lose California at all. And so, political hobbyism becomes a way. It becomes sort of the approach that makes the most intuitive sense to dealing with the emotional desire to be involved in national issues because just by their nature of being national issues, they're very hard for one person to affect. Yeah, but this is, I think this is a major condemnation of the political hobbyist because they are seeding their role, right? They are saying, basically, I want to be connected to important things. And those important things are happening at a national level. And my role in those important things is completely unimportant. Like, I feel like I need to stay up on the impeachment trial because it's important. But I, of course, have no role to play in the impeachment trial. But all the organizers I follow have exactly the opposite intuition, which is the right intuition, which is like, I don't need to follow important things. I actually need to be important. I need to be in a situation where people are relying on me to do something. And so you imagine someone like Lisa, who might spend a whole day walking around neighborhoods, talking to people, and maybe she moves, really moves one person. Maybe there's one person she talks to who she really connects with, and that person changes their mind. Maybe for a long time, actually, they change their mind because of her conversation. A lot of people would say, like, oh, what a one vote, what a drop in the bucket. But Lisa would probably say, like, are you kidding me? Like, I just had one vote before that I was entitled to as a citizen, and now I've doubled my power in this political process. And, you know, I think to some of the work by Theda Scotchpole, Harvard professor of government, who's written about the civic decline over, say, the last 70 years. And she really focuses on this change in attitude among well-educated people, which is basically that, you know, after the World War II, when a very small percentage of the public was college educated, like 5% of the public, people who were felt like they were important, like they were in charge in some level of their communities and in charge of making things go well. They were stewards. And as that population has increased, that is, as the college educated population has grown to something like a third of the country, 
people feel like, uh, you know, oh, I'm not like I'm not important. Like th- this, th- my community doesn't rely on me to do anything. And so you have this shift where you still are in some social network where you get gratification out of being knowledgeable about important things, but no one among your friend group maybe is expecting you to yourself be like someone in the community who organizes votes or keeps things going. One thing that makes me think about is towards the end of my book, Why We're Polarized, I sort of have five buckets of recommendations, solutions, whatever you want to call it. And one of them is I really urge people to get more involved locally in their politics. And I do this for two reasons. One is that Uh, Just that is how American politics is supposed to work. You can have a lot more effect on local politics. It can be much more empowering. You're meeting with people face to face. And it it genuinely is important. A lot of the decisions that matter for people are made at the local and state level, many more than people's very heavily nationalized consumption of political news would suggest. But the other thing I say very directly there is that if you want to be powerful in national politics, the way to get there is to be powerful in local politics. National politicians, they start somewhere and they remember the people who were there with them or help them or even oppose them along the way. And also, even when you're dealing with campaigns and so on, what they want is somebody who knows how to organize in their local community. And it's been very striking to me to see that in some of the reviews of the book, people interpret this as a kind of quietism, that you know, that I am recommending people just step back from politics, that they sort of go hide in, in local politics. And I think it speaks to a very deep way in which we've devalued local organizing, devalued local politics, but also misunderstood how you wield uh, political power more nationally, which is always going to be on some level constructed out of local groups, local power, local civic institutions coming together in, in, in some bigger way. And because some of these were reviews that were really coming from the left, from people who want to create the most dramatic transformations in society, it struck me as quite depressing, actually. There was there is such now a focus among a lot of people who see themselves as the most politically invested and active in changing American politics from the top down. Even if they see themselves as organizers, they don't see themselves as local organizers. And they think that to focus on local organizing is somehow seeding the field, even if you're only doing that as part of your project. And even if part of the reason you're doing it is because you recognize that you're going to be one small part of something that is happening nationally that ultimately will have a national, not just local effect. It was one of the more depressing reactions I, I I got to my book. And I'm curious if you've seen anything like that in the reaction to yours or just how that strikes you. Yeah, I think that's really well put. So I would say there's, I would say there are three things about this. The first is that one really bad part of political hobbyism, I would say, is this like day-to-day time horizon. Like the only thing important happening is happening right now. And I can't make any long-term investments because uh, the important stuff's happening right now. And you see this, I think, really sadly in the way that rich donors on the left are investing in like these billion dollars spent on Tom Steyer and Mike Bloomberg's campaigns because like they want to defeat Trump. But, you know, they're not willing to actually do that same kind of investment in uh, building up a farm team of supporters of, you know, of local politicians and local judges and all that. And so I definitely see that like to someone who feels like, you know, the immediate next election is the only thing that's important. It's hard for them to do a long-term investment. And, you know, I, I bring in cases like that. When, when I hear that, I, I you know, I bring in cases like I bring in the book, which is, you know, like the Massachusetts special Senate election from 2010, 
between Martha Coakley and Scott Brown. This is after an election in 2008 that was saw a surge in participation at a national level for the Democrats. Massachusetts was not close. It was there was overwhelming support for Obama. And then there was this election for the special election for Senate, which was nationally important. The the 60th vote in the Senate for the Democrats is on the line. And Democrats just stayed at home and turnout declined precipitously, particularly in Democratic areas. And the reason it turned out declined so much is because people had this short-term view of politics where there were no local institutions, there were no local committees that could get out the vote in an important election where maybe your candidate was kind of boring or problematic. Um, So I think it's a total mistake to have this short time horizon. The other thing that I think is going on in response to your, your answer is something to do with age and specifically like what the experience is right now for people, say, in their teens and 20s in politics. And, you know, more than any generation, these people are waiting uh, longer to get married, to have kids, to to be homeowners. In fact, a lot of them, like, it's hard to even imagine being a homeowner because of affordability issues. And so they're really quite nomadic compared to previous generations, even of people their age. And because they're nomadic, it's harder from their perspective, I think, to plug in to this hierarchical pathway. Like, yes, their local involvement matters, and it matters for state and federal elections too. But hey, when you're moving every 18 months, like how much can you do? And, you know, I tried to tell some stories in the book of people of that age, you know, teenagers and people in their 20s who were able to buy into more durable communities, even if they were just passers through. But that's really important because if you can't plug into those real community-oriented projects when you're at that age, you might think like, I have to wait till I'm 30 or 40 to be engaged in real politics. And, you know, I think that's a that's a pretty big mistake. So there's a ton there. But one of the things that I do want to hold here on this nationalization of politics issues. So one of the books I found just unbelievably helpful in doing my own was The Increasingly United States or maybe These Increasingly United States by either Dave or Dan Hopkins. Dan Hopkins, right. Dan Hopkins. There are so many political scientists named either Dan or Dave Hopkins. It's very frustrating. Um, But it's a great book. And one of the things that he talks about in it that really – it's so obvious once you hear it, but it wasn't obvious to me before, is that it is weird and it is new that people are so much more attached to national elections than to local ones. That if you imagine humankind as rational political agents – You would imagine that we would be most interested in participating in the elections where we would have the largest effect. So a mayoral election in our city where our vote is quite important would be much more interesting to us than a presidential election where our vote individually is not meaningless but almost meaningless. And that's particularly true when you live in a a safe city, uh, you know, that is going to clearly go red or blue no matter what you do in the in the presidential. And Arguably, that has been true at other times. Uh, Certainly the way the American political system was constructed, James Madison has this quote that it stands to reason that our primary political attachments will be to our states and to our cities, not to the national scene. And now that seems a little bit ridiculous and it's obvious to people that uh, we feel like Americans first, that we're going to be more interested in national politics and state and local politics. But it didn't. that wasn't how it always was. It wasn't how our system was designed. And something that Hopkins shows really clearly and that I use pretty heavily in my book is that this move to a nationalization of politics is, one, quite responsible for polarization to a large degree because uh, – 
just where people came from when that is a central political identity and concern, it creates cross-cutting political identities and cross-cutting political incentives that hold back uh, party polarization. Because if you are voting first and foremost as a legislator from Oklahoma or Nebraska or California or Arizona, and only secondly as a Democrat or Republican, that's going to hold back the the, the two-party polarization, which our system is not well set up to deal with. But the other thing that it does is it creates a sense of American politics as rooted in a place that keeps people connected to like a day-to-day practice of democracy, which is much harder to do nationally, again, where, where we have a lot less power. And so just I know this is a little bit bigger than what your book is 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 talking about, but I'm curious, given the work you've been doing, just how you think about the nationalization of politics in general and what it means for the political system that so many technological and economic trends are pushing towards nationalization. I mean, this is happening way beyond just politics. Look at how culture works now. Look at how uh, the production of goods and services work now. Look at what businesses dominate in areas, how many more chains we have, that kind of thing. Like, what does it mean for a politics that was designed to be heavily state and local, that it has become so national and looks like it's probably only going to keep going in that direction, given the trends that are driving it? So, you know, the difference between politics and, say, business on this front is that, as you noted, uh, the structure of the government here refuses to be national like that. So, you know, take my home state of Massachusetts. We have a very popular Republican governor. The Speaker of the State House is this like conservative pro-life Democrat. You know, the real world on the ground doesn't look like it's some, you know, blue state that wants to uh, implement everything that's in the Democratic Party's national platform. And so to the extent that the noise online looks different, is in some ways very damning, particularly on the political left, I think, because, you know, on the left, I think you do have this strong desire or stated desire for real change on issues like the environment, say, or for racial justice. But then, you know, all of that noise goes away when it comes to fixing local school systems or actually change, you know, raising a gas tax and all that stuff. And of course, not all the noise. There's still, you know, there's a lot of people involved locally who are pushing those issues and working really hard on them. But, you know, to the extent that there are a lot of people sitting at their desks or on their couches or at their dinner dining room tables, like sending out lots of tweets about all these national plans, but they won't engage them at the local level. It's not like it's true that politics is national. This stuff is really still happening at the state level. They're they're just not doing it. So, and I think that is more of a left problem than a, than a right problem for a lot of reasons. But yeah, I think it's not like all the local businesses are closing and taking over by Amazon. That the, the political equivalent is not quite like that. The media environment has changed, and maybe like where our minds have changed, but the structure of government hasn't changed. Is there a difference between pl- the level of political hobbyism on the left and the right in your data? So in the data. You see it in some ways, but not other ways. So, you know, it's true that this demographic of people, you know, when I measured it in 2018 of like college educated news followers, you know, that that group is more liberal than conservative. But, you know, I'm a little bit skeptical about like whether if I measured again at different points in time, who's most attentive to news, for example, or spending the most time in politics, whether that would stay a Democratic thing or Republican thing. Retirees have a lot more time to dedicate to politics, and they're mostly doing it in these hobbyist ways. And, you know, retirees definitely trend Republican. But when you look at like institutions like, say, churches on the right, where people are regularly engaging in in in-person community engagement, which can be leveraged for politics, versus on the left, where you have less attachments to local institutions, you have, you know, this huge demographic of young people who are 
not only nomadic and moving every you know every eighteen months or whatever, but they're also you know not attending religious institutions or, or engaging in other civic in-person pursuits. I I do think that there is a, a case to be made that this is a, a the hobbyism problem is a bigger problem for the left than the right. I want to move now to a discussion, not necessarily of solutions, but of alternatives. And you have a very interesting discussion of understanding political practice as a form of service, which I think most people don't see it as, and particularly not given some of the other language we use in the book about politics as a form of of getting power. So what does it mean to understand politics as a form of service? Right. So if if you want to serve your community, how do you do it? You can do it by doing like good deeds. But part of the process is getting political power so that you can use the government to help people or to help your community grow. You can help the next generation of people. The way that I think we ought to think about politics is that it's one of the tools we have to serve our communities. Um a lot of people don't think about it like that. They want to put community service and politics in different buckets. And that's precisely because I think they they want to think about politics as this as this sort of democratic versus republican fight whereas they think about community service as some like nonpartisan do-gooder activity. But really, if you have you know whatever goals you have in politics, they are in a sense a form of community service. But the other way that politics is a form of service is that the way to get political power is to get other people in a particular place on board with you. So you, either a candidate or if you're working for a candidate, so that candidate can get in power. In other words, you serve other people, you build trust, you build rapport uh, in a neighborhood or in a district. And then when you ask someone for their vote or to come together for some kind of activism, because they trust you and like you and you've built rapport with them, they'll go along with what you're doing. So in that sense, community ser- politics is like a form of service. And also to get political power, you have to do a form of community service. Talk a bit more about that, though, because something you discuss in the book is this idea that you could imagine party organizations and institutions that were doing direct service provision, even outside of being able to wield enough power to make that provision through law. So the way I I think people imagine this is that maybe you work for the Democratic Party, uh, not like as a job, but as a volunteer, because what you're trying to do is get Democrats enough power to pass a bill such that the government provides child care or health care. And you make an argument in the book that maybe that should be reconceptualized, that the way to get Democrats enough power to pass a bill to provide health care or child care is to actually work as a Democrat through the institution of the Democratic Party to provide health care or child care even before that power is available. And that's quite radical. I mean, it is done by other groups. You talk about the Black Panthers in, in in the book. I think it's understood. You, in fact, at one point talk about the KKK going around and offering opioid services, that it's long been known that sort of political organizations, parties will sometimes do that direct provision of services in order to build local strength in a community. But parties at this point, which used to do this to some degree when they had local machines, don't do it now. And I think to a lot of people, it seems that it would be weird if they did, that they're not supposed to act directly. They're supposed to act through the political system. So why did they stop? What would that shift mean? Is that even legal for them to do? Talk talk a bit about what that change would be. Yeah. So just to, to give folks a sense. So like one of the things I recommend in the book is this idea that I actually took from my own university. So my own university where I work, which is Tufts, they offer staff, all staff, all full-time staff, uh, this benefit where if you, if you need emergency backup care for either elder care or child care, the university has 
gives you this like massively discounted rate and they provide this service. And they do that because it's a good benefit. And they also, I think, want to convey, I would guess, that they're the kind of employer that cares about their staff's needs and how hard it is to take care of elderly parents or take care of kids. I then have a little thought experiment, like what if a local or state political party did this, right? So imagine you're a political party and you care about supporting families. And both the Democratic and Republican Party say they care about this. Democratic Party wants to pass laws that, um, you know, maybe give paid parental leave, for example. So the thing is that that's pretty um, distant from a lot of people. Suppose that in order to convey as a Democratic Party or as a Republican Party that you really care about people's needs, you do something like what my university does, right? You say, like, we'll provide on an emergency basis backup care and we'll show you as concretely as possible that we really care about these needs that you have. So why are people icked out by that? I think people are icked out by that because they have this view that you, a voter, should not be making your decisions about who to vote for based on whether a party or a campaign gives you some material benefit. They think that what you should be thinking about is, you know, big policy goals. Like you should be evaluating the presidential candidate's plans for parental leave and health care and everything else. And whoever you think has the best plans, you should vote for them. But just because someone's taking care of you, uh, that's not a good enough reason to vote. In fact, that's a bad reason to vote. And I guess my sense is that's just wrong. <laughs> that um, That if you look at what organizers are doing from all walks of life, they are doing this concrete provision of service. So, you know, the NRA chapters, they're providing free classes on safety for kids. And they get people to participate in a gun club for those safety classes, maybe. And then they convert them later into people who will take an interest in the NRA's mission. How does, you know, how does a church or a synagogue get people to come? Well, sometimes it's because they offer free childcare, free health, you know, free childcare, free classes, something like that. And, you know, some of the organizers in my book, you know, I talk about one of my favorite ones, this, this elderly man in Boston, Nah, who's 98 years old, who controls, he said, to control a thousand votes. And all that really means is that he's done decades of nice things for his community. And so they think that their interests are aligned with his interests. And he suggests who they vote for. And because they love him so much, they all vote the same way. And I guess I just want to revisit that the claim that that's an icky form of politics, whereas I think it's actually a, a beautiful form of politics and one that parties that want power should embrace. Well, I, I want to offer an alternative explanation of how that got, as you put it, icky, which is that something that has happened in American politics over the past, it's called 100 years, is we began to tell a story about the party bosses and machine political institutions of like the earlier mid-20th century. It was really negative. They were corrupt, boss tweed kind of things. And as part of that story, it's understood that one of the ways that they held power was that the boss would give out turkeys on Thanksgiving or he or he usually he would make sure people had a job if they lost their if they lost their job or, you know, that they got a little bit of support if they lost their job. And that, it, that we've come to understand that sort of direct work, right, direct giving out of things, direct help of, for people to, to, to get work or get child care or get hooked up with something they need as a form of bribery almost. And so. We've like tossed all that out, and I think that's part of a larger tossing out of almost all transactionalist politics. I, I talk in my book a bit about Ben Nelson 
negotiating that deal in Obamacare to get Nebraska free Medicaid expansion to, to, to get his vote, how that became known as a Cornhusker kickback, but from another perspective and got rejected from the bill ultimately, and he ended up leaving politics. But how from another perspective, that is exactly what uh, an, an individual politician should be doing on behalf of his local community. Earmarks similarly have that dimension. Jonathan Rauch, who I think is a great writer on a lot of these topics, has been making the argument at Brookings and in pieces um, over the past couple of years that we need to reassess a lot of these transactionalist, more grubby forms of politics and understand that there is a beauty and an importance to them. And you can have a very corrupt politics without anybody getting anything good out of it. But but that seems to me to be the problem, that all of this got connected to machine politics, understood as a form of political bribery. And as such, it would be, um, it would be unsavory to do it, as opposed to understanding that politics is in a very deep way about making people's lives better. And if you can do that on the individual uh, specific level, that ladders up to the collective level and sort of shows a commitment and shows that your values are aligned and they know you and see you and have a sense of what you need, as opposed to, to these things somehow being disconnected. And we don't trust people to separate what somebody's doing from them, what somebody's doing uh, for them from their long-term political opinions or their own political justice. Judgment. Yeah, like what a weird thing that will we prefer politicians to spend millions, hundreds of million dollars on, you know, Facebook ads trying to target our psychological preferences and all that, but we don't want them, you know, like providing childcare or something like that. But you know, I think I think your story is is right, and you know, I, I talk a bunch about this in the book, and 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 one of the analogies I give is to religion here that. In both religious organizations and in political organizations, of course, there's this history of awful abuse and corruption. And I think there's been a, a historical response to that, which is to say, you know, whatever value like a local church or a local party committee might have in serving a community, it's just not worth the downside risk of abuse of power. And, you know, I think that's, for one thing, too bad that people have that reaction because I think it is possible to have this more kind of service-driven approach to politics and, frankly, to religion that doesn't have the the risks of abuse of power. Or even if it does have the abuse of power risks, maybe those risks are worth it. And that's because, like, if you don't have anyone who can organize people in a community for good, you know— you can't do anything. So, you know, there's some risk that some people who are trying to organize for good turn out they, they're not so good people. So, you know, I think you, you can't have one without the other here. You have a nice line in your chapter comparing this to religion where you, you talk about politics as having followed much the same path as religion in the sense that there's been this rise of I'm spiritual but not religious, right? I'm interested in God, but I'm not connected to any organized institution. And and it made me wonder how much you see this as generally a collapse of organized institutions. So in the political realm, we can talk about machine politics, local organizations. The parties have just become weaker in all sorts of ways. And, and you make an argument that that is a contributor to political hobbyism because the parties were an institution that could connect people to a strategic effort to win power. But you've seen in a very deep way the decline of unions the decline of churches and synagogues. There's a whole bowling alone phenomenon. You 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 mentioned earlier Theta Scotchpole's work on the decline of some civic institutions. Just how much do you think we're seeing a more unified result of the atomization of society? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what we're seeing. We if like people don't want to buy in to say a local church or political committee, and in part because those institutions have been really weakened over time, in part because 
like uh, people feel who are comfortable in their lives, who are like, you know, have jobs. They they think they have things going for them. They don't want to like have to bother with dealing with other people. You know, meanwhile, of course, like those who are least connected from institutions have like really, you know, higher rates of depression and and you know, a feeling of disconnect. And so, yeah, I mean, I think these things are all related. And again, like, you know, I think you can't, you know, if the only religious engagement you have is, you know, a spirituality iPhone app, then that's something that's for you, which is fine, but it's not a way to embrace a religion as a service to other people. Same thing with politics. You know, if you, if the be all and end all of your participation is news following, then like, that's for you. You are not helping anyone else by doing that. So let's say that you're listening to this podcast and you are finding an uncomfortable level of recognition of yourself in what you're saying. What is the couple step plan for somebody like that? It's it's a big jump to go from I am super politically involved. I listen to 10 podcasts. I read Vox all the time. Like I'm into politics. I'm doing this to reconceptualizing yourself as a political hobbyist and wanting to change that. So if somebody's listening to this and they do want to change that, they do want to get more involved in politics as a power pursuit in a strategic way, where would you suggest they start? Well, obviously reading the book. No, that, um, that, that frankly sounds like just more political hobbyism to me, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, look, I mean, as we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, you know, I was the kind of person that was kind of icked out by real political activity in ways maybe I couldn't put my finger on why. But part of the reason was, was that the, I felt like the people who were driven to participate in politics were, you know, maybe had more extreme views than I have or something like that. And the stories of the seven organizers I tell in this book present like a very different face of politics, which is, again, I think politics is a form of service, which is a kind of politics that I could really personally relate to. Like these people are out there changing the lives of the people around them in ways I think anyone from any political party would find inspiring. And then realizing that that is a form of politics and is useful for serving bigger political goals, I think is like a very important paradigm shift that people need to make. They have to make the shift that politics isn't about following important things. It's about doing something where people are relying on you to make like a difference in other people's lives. And I, I just think that is like... It, Maybe that sounds like a little fluffy or or too, like too heartwarming, but like that really is uh, an important shift for people to make. The second thing I would say is like if you want to actually do it, you know, you have to remember that this is a long term plan and think about it as a long term plan. And maybe you think about okay, who are the two or three people in my life, in my neighborhood, who I might do this with? What goals do we have? How can we plug into an existing organization? You know, there might be a bunch of organizations out there that are populated by people who are, you know, maybe somewhat lethargic. They don't have a big ambitious agenda. And you actually could be the person that helps them grow as an organization. Or maybe you need to start your own organization. But but but, but let me ask very tactically on that. Like, let's say you're listening to this and you're just like, but how do I even find if there are lethargic organizations in my community? I mean, is there a database somewhere? Is there a website they can go to? Is there somebody that, you know, that you recommend? Like, if you don't even know where to start, where do you start? Yeah, I mean, that is the thing about local politics, which is like, there's not, you know, uh, there's no like national website that's curating all this. I mean, just think about the groups that I study in my book. There's like this Latino coalition in a small town in Massachusetts. There's a group in the middle of Trump country, Pennsylvania, that's doing community organizing. They're all over the place and they're all different. And 
And so you actually have to go in person. I mean, here's a here's here's a, it's it's similarly related answer to a question about news consumption I often get, which is like I don't even know where to get local news from. And so, you know, maybe you can look, but the truth is that sometimes, sometimes for local news, you actually have to go in person to like a candidate forum. <laughs> you have to actually seek out the news in a very different way. Um, and I similarly, I think if you went to your, say, city hall and tried to uh, spend an evening there learning like, like who is here? Who's trying to push buttons on different policy issues? Or who's at the state house if you live near a state house? You know, I think like you're going to have to do a little bit of work. But if you think about, you know, if you're a real political junkie and you're spending an hour, two hours a day, you know, that's 10 hours, 14 hours a week on politics, like maybe you can uh, take off an evening and go downtown to your to your city hall. You know, I I will say I've just I'm actually for my own reporting, I've spent a fair amount of time at the SF City Hall recently. And something you really notice if you're sitting there through some of those planning meetings is how many groups show up. So if this sounds to you a little like airy fairy, I mean, well, you would go and then what would happen? You, you might be wrong about that, because one of the things that local groups are constantly doing is organizing to show up at City Hall to make their voices heard on issues where almost nobody is being heard. Like that is just literally what local groups do. And one problem is that often those local groups are unrepresentative or they might not be on the side you want. But but if you do go and sit through a couple planning meetings or a couple city council meetings that have public comment, it isn't actually like what you see in Parks and Rec, no matter how funny that was. It is almost always people with a very discreet stake in the issue, either like they are the homeowner in the place it is going to be affected by the development or by the rule, or they're a group that has an ideological stake in the issue. So you'll see um, anti-gentrification groups coming and protesting at, you know, and commenting with 100 people against this development, or you'll see the Yes in My Backyard YIMBY groups showing up to to, to speak in favor of that development. So there, there is more you will pick up there. It, it It is not as much like you were just trying to osmosis your way into it as that can sound. Um, as somebody who's done some reporting in this, in this way, it, it, it will show up for you. But I think it is telling that you actually can't point people to, you know, even just a couple websites that might get them started. I mean, if it's really true that there's almost nothing out there, I mean, even things like, you know, in my head, one one way you could think about this, this is obviously somewhat more national, but I think the indivisible group, if you're on the left, has had a lot of different um, local chapters. There's a lot of resistance organizing that has happened in the past couple of years. I think there are some online places you could go to, to find somewhere, someone that would at least be a, a starting point. Yeah, what I, what I would say is that, you know, I think that it, it, take the resistance groups as an example, the indivisible groups, the indivisible chapters. One thing that's fascinating about indivisible chapters is that they vary dramatically in their goals and their methods and their demographics town to town. So, you know, you might look at one town and it's like one whole different set of people than is another town. Um, and so I think from someone who's actually trying to get involved, they are going to have to figure out a way to get involved in a way that feels right to them. And and they're going to have to actually do some homework to feel it out. Can I just tell you one quick story that's Please? not in the book, but I think really encapsulate this point about local activism? Last summer, I took a group of students. Uh, I was doing this like civic engagement training. I took them to a zoning board meeting in suburban New York. And we encountered this one woman there. She's like 50 years old. She was the first person we met. And we learned over the course of the evening that this person, she shows up every single like Tuesday night or whatever night it was for these meetings. And 
she's basically there to be a thorn in the side of the developers. Um, and over time, she's learned all of the rules about zoning just by sitting in there. And she speaks at every opportunity. And the one thing that happened that was funny while we were there is like after she spoke, one of the developers spoke and 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 he said, um, uh, I just want to say an announcement, like for the first time, I agree with Susan and everyone on the zoning board laughed and like, ha ha ha, this person who, you know, shows up every time is in third in the side of the developer, finally convinced the developer or something or agreed with the developer on something. And the thing I want someone to get out of that story is that this person, in this case, it's a lone wolf, a solitary actor. She has actually accumulated a lot of knowledge and power in her community just by instead of like seven days a week watching Netflix, maybe six days a week she watches Netflix and then one day, you know, shows up here. She's learned a lot. She knows how to fight for the issues she cares about. And she's basically done it even in her case, which is very rare, all alone. And I think that a lot of people react to someone like her and say like, how pathetic, like what a weirdo who would do that? And I just want them to have the reaction instead, like, maybe maybe I'm the one that's a weirdo on my couch who doesn't really do anything. Maybe she's actually doing it right. And maybe, like, I should value what she's doing instead of demeaning it. I think there's a lot to that. Um, and by the way, that's also the story of the the YIMBY movement in SF. I'm, I'm, I apologize because I'm blanking on the woman's name, but it really did come from someone who began showing up and began arguing at, at these meetings. Something I learned early on as a journalist, and it was a place where I got power long before I had an important journalistic position, is people in official positions are starved for feedback. Not the president of the United States, but even the policy directors of key members of the Senate are releasing papers and preparing testimony and speeches all the time that nobody ever covers. And so if you are the person who shows up and covers them, whether you're doing that journalistically or you're doing that as a citizen who then gives comment, people are so desperate to hear something about what it is they are doing and spending all their time on that you develop a lot of power way out of proportion to the actual power you wield. I mean, I was a kid writing a blog and they were trying to win me over just because I was one of the only people who was going to render a verdict. And so if I was going to be the person rendering a verdict that they were going to read for their own psychological reasons, they wanted it to be a positive verdict. And I just I remember this particularly in the um, in the 08 presidential campaign that all of the policy directors were constantly trying to, to, to sell me on their plans. And it wasn't because of the American prospect. I was such a key journalistic influencer. I very much wasn't. It's that I was just one of the only people routinely writing about their plans. And they like they wanted that back. And I see it now having written a book. I am very connected to what people are saying about my book or now it's kind of dying down for me a little bit psychologically. But I was certainly at the beginning because I was so desperate for feedback before I'd gotten anybody that just like, I mean, those first 50 Goodreads reviews or those first Amazon reviews, like I knew every single word of them, not because like this was who I cared the most uh, in terms of their thoughts on polarization, but I'd worked on this for a long time. So sometimes people think about these things in terms of power and forget that at the center of these are human beings who are working really hard and are very uh, vulnerable to social feedback, both for, for good and for bad. Yeah, I just want to say like, well, this is a better response to the reporting on Congress example than the Amazon reviews example. But, you know, I, I imagine your experience reporting on Congress, even from a you know a left of center news source. Um, but there, you might know, you might have encountered politicians on the right or on the left even too, who you like really disagree with and you thought it had it all wrong. But because you were kind of in a long-term relationship in a way with them, like you were going to see them again and might want something from them in the future, like 
you didn't behave the way a lot of people behave online, which is, you know, in this in this really knee jerk response. And so I, I think that like the fact that that when you operating in some long term relationship where you need to maintain some decorum in order to convince someone of something down the road does, I think, also change the way we approach these political conversations sometimes. Yeah. And I would say my my experience on that is you do not need to be positive to people to maintain a long-term relationship to them. What you need to be is fair. People, I think, oftentimes respect, and many of my most important reporting relationships have come from very negative things I've written about politicians or policy papers or whatever it might have been. But that those negative reviews or those negative pieces have been fair. The level of engagement was was such that people understood I was taking their work seriously. And so they saw me as somebody they could try to convince. Um, there's actually there's a lot something that a lot of journalists have the experience of is writing something that gets them into a disagreement with the source. And at the end of that kind of back and forth, people are like, well, why don't we get lunch? Um, and thus begins a relationship, which might it might continue being antagonistic, but it's built uh, on the sense that you're going to have some kind of back and forth in the ideas. And there's at least a belief that people on, on both sides will listen. And I've somebody who I've been covering Republicans forever, like since the beginning of my career. And I'm often in disagreement with them on a lot of policy issues. But I think that I have a reputation for being certainly willing to listen, um, which is not always something that the people on the left love about me, but, but it is important to the way I think about my own work. But actually, this brings me in a different way to something I do want to ask you as we sort of come to the end here, which is about political journalism. Um, there's no doubt that a lot of political journalism is very much oriented towards a hobbyist. And if people have read my book, they know that there's a lot in that about the business incentives of the media in a very polarized age to feed this kind of hobbyist attachment to to, to national politics. But what advice would you give to, to journalists covering politics? What, what would a journalistic ecosystem look like that was more oriented towards helping people do the work of politics as opposed to simply follow politics? What would be productive here? Sure. And I would say this actually not just to political journalists, but to political scientists, too, who I think don't do enough of the following, which is we know shockingly little about collective action and coordination, which is basically the bread and butter of mass participation. We know very little about it. If you look at some of the stories like the, you know, the old man, the Ukrainian boss controlling a thousand votes. And we don't know as political scientists about how that works. And I think political journalists don't really cover that stuff much. They don't cover these stories of people who are making change and also sometimes not making change to the extent that I think they ought to. Um, I think that journalists should, you know, think about ways, if, if I were to give any advice, it'd be like, think about for every story they're writing, does this help a citizen be a better citizen? And what do I mean by better citizen? And is this moving them forward in some way? And some stories, the answer is no. And sometimes you're a news firm who just has to give people some horse race stuff to, to pay the bills. But then at least let some of it be focused on stories that are really tied to concrete ways people are supposed to be involved as citizens in politics. Give me an example of a story you've seen like that that, that, that you thought was productive. Of a story that's written by a journalist. Yeah, I mean, what do you what do you mean what do you mean by that, right? I, I have to cover a lot of things. I mean, one reason I cover things is because people need to know what's going on, and even if that is a hobbyist thing to do, I, I do think it is important to have an informed populace. So, like, I, among other things, writing about the killing of Soleimani doesn't strike me as something that is going to help people 
amass power in their local communities, but it's important for other reasons. But like, what's an example of a story that will help that, right? Because I'm, I don't want to, I'm not trying to write guides to activism here, but I do want to cover the world in a way that helps people understand how to act within it for their own purposes. So, so make the distinction. Don't just, don't just give me the abstract, give me the specific. Yeah. And of course, yeah, I'm not talking about national, international politics. I'm just talking about, you know, U.S., mostly U.S. electoral and electoral politics and 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 mass engagement. So, you know, like one of the stories in my book is this woman, Kiris Matias, who's this Dominican woman living in Haverhill, Massachusetts. She's a school bus monitor who started this amazingly impressive Latino coalition, she calls it, in her town, which has made real clear change on some issues facing Latino communities related to schools, related to jobs in the city, um, related to voting rights in a community that has about 20% of the population is Latino and none of the office holders are Latino. You know, related to like how the police department interacts with ICE, all sorts of things. And, you know, I found her by just kind of being connected to Massachusetts political networks where I could learn about someone like her. But she, who is, you know, ahead of this, like, a really impressive political organization, has never been covered in the media. <laughs> like, and there's just so many people out here like her. You know, I, I you know, I, of the stories in the in the book, people sometimes ask me, like, how did you find these people? And the answer is, like, they're actually everywhere. These people are everywhere. And um, they're not covered. And one of the reasons they're not covered, I think, is that I think political reporters might imagine only covering them as these kind of bio pieces where they tell some feel-good story about what these people are up to. But that's not the only way to cover it. I mean, there's a lot to learn about organizing and racial issues and what it means to, um, like, how wh- wh- when 50 people are in a room with a uh, school superintendent, like, what does that do? And and I, I don't know. I mean, I think that we could use that lens a, bu- a bunch more. So I think it's a good place to, to come to a close. Let me ask you what's always our final question here, which is, what are three books you've read that influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? Okay, let's see. So I'll, uh, there's a historian, a retired historian, Stephen Gelber, who wrote a book called Hobbies. That was really like the first bit of kind of historical sociology that really uh, inspired me on in this book. Um, it's, it's an academic book, but it's it's readable for a general audience. Uh, number two, I would say, um, as as we talked about a little bit before, like you know, I think a lot of my understanding of politics as service does come from understanding movements like the Black Power movement. And on that topic, I'd recommend uh, uh, this, again, historian from Vanderbilt, Rhonda Williams, who wrote a book called Concrete Demands, which I think is a great title, and talks about, you know, historically what the Black Power Movement was up to and, and, and this focus on concrete demands. And then I'll tell you what I'm reading right now, which I think is actually connected to this project in a strange way, which is a book by Sarah Hurwitz called Here All Along. And um, that book's, uh, so Sarah Hurwitz was an Obama speechwriter who wrote a book, this book, about uh, like finding Judaism. Um, And the reason I like this book is uh, it actually is a similar story to the story of hobbyism, which is that there are all sorts of institutional reasons why she and a lot of people like her were like disconnected from religion. And then like at some point she decided to really like take a step into concrete engagement with both learning and involvement and found a lot more value in it than she imagined um, just with like the kind of childhood horrible uh, Sunday school version of religion. And so I'm not done with that book yet, but I think it's a, a beautiful parallel here. Eitan Hirsch, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you to Eitan Hirsch. And now I'm going to try a bit of an experiment. 
something I wanted to do here, uh, listening to this conversation, having this conversation, was ask you what you're doing. What are you doing in terms of politics as a verb to amass power in politics so you can do something with it or achieve some goal or to practice politics as a form of service? Have you been doing something? Is there something you intend to do? Having listened to this, is there something you want to figure out how to do? Now, normally, if I ask this question, I would say, email me at EsraKleinShowAtVox.com and let me know. But then I just end up with hundreds of emails, which are amazing and they make me feel warm. But what to do with them next has always been this big question for me. But when I was on book tour, some of you came up to me and told me that you've been trying to build a subreddit for the podcast at reddit.com slash rssdisrecline. And there aren't a ton of people there right now, just a couple hundred, I think. But I checked it out, and the level of discussion is really high, and it is a place where people can communicate, and it's easy, and I've always enjoyed Reddit. And so why don't you go there, if you're willing to, and respond to that question? Um, I hope I don't break the subreddit by asking this, but they they asked for some promotion. So this is not something that I am running or that Vox is running. I want to be clear about it. But if you want to have this conversation and have it with other people from the show, go to reddit.com slash r slash Ezra Klein. And I'd love to see what people have to say in terms of either how they have been trying to conduct politics or do politics as a service or in way in which they intend to do it or want to figure out how to do it. And maybe there's something that can emerge from people having that conversation with each other that can be more than that would just emerge if you all emailed me individually. Um, so that's the ask. Uh, let's see how it goes. I hope you, <laughs> I hope something good comes of it. Um, thank you again to Eitan. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. My email, as always, is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And the Ezra Klein Show, as always, is a Vox Media podcast production. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.